Welcome to the Middle East Law and Governance podcast. Middle East Law and Governance is a journal for scholarly analysis focusing on issues of governance and social, economic, and ideological transformation in the modern Middle East and North Africa. And this is our podcast. My name is Ezra Carmel, and I'm lucky to be joined today by Miriam Gotet and Miriam McGrebby, who co-authored a paper for Melg's recently published special issue looking at governance in the MENA during COVID. Miriam Gutet is a former associate director of CMAT and currently an affiliate member of the Center for International and European Law and Maghreb Europe Relations at the University of Carthage. And Miriam McGrebby is an associate professor in the Faculty of Legal, Political, and Social Sciences, also at the University of Carthage. Miriam, Miriam, it's great to have you on the podcast. Thank you, Ezra. Yes, thank you. Uh, thank you for inviting us. No, it's so great to have you both on the podcast. And now, before we jump into, I guess, the heart of your article, looking at the, the institutional responses to COVID in Tunisia, um, Miriam Gutet, could you, could you maybe provide some background context to the governance situation in Tunisia, at least since the passing of the 2014 constitution? Yes, uh, thank you for the question. Um, maybe I could start with background even before the 2014 constitution or what represents the background uh, for the politics that we have today in Tunisia. Yeah, sounds perfect. So about that, uh, one can argue that the concept of consensus encapsulates the Tunisian transition process and governance style up to 2019, when the political landscape resulting from elections was so fragmented and polarized as to create space for negotiation. Mm -hmm. So the 2014 constitution specifically is in our view, um, the culmination of consensus politics and their repercussions. Right. While it is true that consensus created a space for debate in a very unstable environment and had indeed contributed to the pacification of political interactions pre and post 2014 when the constitution was passed, um, it is also evident that it was an inherent aspect of the country's governance crisis. As Shiran Grival uh, notes, there is a dark side to this consensus in Tunisia. In 2013, for instance, a, cons a consensus committee was created within the National Constituent Assembly to advance the drafting of the constitution. This led major political forces to compromise on important matters, such as human rights and women rights specifically, and to put an emphasis on the civil nature of the state in the constitution, which is obviously on the positive side of things. Yeah, sure. The Tunisian National Dialogue Quartet, which won a Nobel Prize for its efforts to consolidate democratic and constitutional milestones, contributed to this consensus tradition in the making. However, the 2014 constitution itself bore the consequences of the turbulent negotiations that, that led to it and was an embodiment of such divergent political, social, and cultural views to the point where it looks like it tried to fit in too much at some point. <laughs> right. Provisions of the Constitution's preamble and first chapter do not reflect a cohesive stance, for example, and are even contradictory when it comes to issues related to identity and religion. As for the political regime, uh, which is at the core of our article, the practice which followed the adoption of the 2014 Constitution revealed multiple flaws. This hybrid regime borrows substantial features from the traditional parliamentary and presidential system, making it impossible to locate in the map of constitutional governance techniques 
In the 2014 Constitution, the Parliament is the center of power and its legitimacy. In order to limit the risks of sliding back into presidentialism, though, which, and you know that presidentialism, like in, under the Ben Ali era, over-centralized the prerogatives at the hands of the president, the Tunisian executive branch was segmented into two entities. And here is, I think, where the problem lies. Mm-hmm. The president of the republic and the head of the government, of course, we said. So the president is elected through popular suffrage, but has a limited scope of prerogatives. And here lies part of the problems. So you have an elected president with people going to vote for the person directly, but then that person cannot implement um, the program that was... um, that was part of those election of the election process because um, the prerogatives are limited, and the head of government draws legitimacy uh, from the parliament's uh, political majority vote and holds most of the executive's authority. Mm-hmm. So why some had called this structure a no system? I'm talking about uh, Tunisian observers and uh, legal scholars, of course. They have called the, this structure a no system, a makeshift of sorts. Um, specifically, some Tunisian scholars, um, like Professor Rafa bin Ashur, observed that this is a peculiar regime that par- paralyzes governmental work and state institutions, as well as leads inevitably to unstable coalitions. So, from the moment the 2014 constitution was ratified, voices were, re- were already calling for the reform of its provisions regarding the political system, as well as the reform of the elections law. This created a lot of tension within the executive and legislative institutions and resulted in a power struggle around the assertion of their you know, respective prerogatives. The delays in the establishment of independent constitutional authorities, such as the High Judicial Council, Um, And these authorities were meant to balance the relationships between the three epicenters of power. Um, And of course, as you know, in the case of the Tunisian Constitutional Court, um, um, it was an impossible process for its creation uh, and and it never saw the light. So all of this resulted in the intensification of such a crisis. Yeah, of course. So finally, consensus, and this is very ironic, harbored polarization since it didn't offer a real space for opposition within the state institutions and actively worked to reconcile views even if they weren't. And so um, this, to my view, hampered the trust uh, in political parties. It alienated them from their bases uh, who turned for more radical representation political representation I'm talking about. So, for example, the unlikely coalition between Nida Tunis and Nahda following the 2014 election uh, made very unpopular compromises around transitional justice, for example, uh, and moved on with uh, criminal and economic amnesties uh, at the same time when the ramping security issues coupled with corruption and the economic crisis started crippling the space for political action. So, when you look at this entire situation, and excuse me for going into such a you know um, deep background, uh, but I think it is needed. Uh, this entire situation led to the very polarized 2019 elections, 
and even to the moment that we are living now in Tunisia and created an environment that was so auspicious to populism, but also so auspicious to, you know, the break in communication that happened later on. Great. Well, that really, really set the context for your paper perfectly. And so maybe, you know, turning to your article, which really focuses on, on Tunisia's response at the start of the pandemic, maybe um, Miriam Agrebi, turning to the other Miriam, uh, could you maybe outline the measures that the government put in place in, in response to COVID? Yes, thank you. So um, when the WHO recognized and uh, recommended um, physical dis- distanciation measures and restriction on movement as a uh, preventive strategy to counter the spread of the disease, Tunisia implemented a set of gradual measures, uh, starting from uh, banning big gatherings to closing borders, uh, to arriving at the end in the culmination of these measures in a de- declaration by the President of the Republic of a national lockdown under the state of exception, uh, which was announced by Qais Saied and uh, documented in Presidential Decree number 2020, uh, adopted in March 18, 2020. So within this framework and uh, in the very early stages of the pandemic, uh, Tunisian authorities relied on wide interpretations of the existing legal rules. Uh, since the first legal text specific to the pandemic, uh, such as, for example, the uh, decree law regulating sanctions to curfew violations, or uh, the law adopted in uh, April 12, 2020, which authorized the head of the government to pass decree laws to deal with the repercussions of the spread of the virus, these texts uh, only came around a month uh, later. So uh, the situation was uncertain, and this uncertainty uh, resulted in what we call the revival of old and uh, well-known habits where the representatives of the security apparatus uh, became de facto lawmakers, interpreting uh, pre-existing norms, uh, sometimes even in very arbitrary ways. So if we take, for instance, uh, the example of one of the decree laws that were adopted in April uh, pertaining to the curfew violations, we can notice that while this text only provided for, for example, a fine of uh, 50 dinars as a sanction, the Ministry of Interior uh, issued explanatory statements on its website, actually, announcing additional sanctions that were not provided for in legal texts. So these announcements that do not have any clear legal grounds called uh, for the application of uh, disproportionate sanctions, which are borrowed from the um, from other texts that are already in place, like the Tunisian Traffic Code, uh, where sanctions such as uh, confiscation of vehicles or confiscations of driving licenses were applied then. And we should also recall that the state of emergency was still in place at the same time which offered a kind of a by default two levels of repressive sanctions that were largely contested by the civil society and uh, pointed out for their excessive nature. 
So as such, um, individuals were accused of violating the measures of house confinement, for example, were subject to sanctions of home detention that uh, were not based on like specific texts adopted in the context of the uh, pandemic, but were based on the already in place presidential decree pertaining to the state of emergency which is an old text, which goes back to uh, 1978. Right. So, so that really moves us, I guess, to the center of your article. So maybe, maybe you could explain what you argue these measures show us about governance in Tunisia. So um, we believe that the most important feature of these decisions, and it is also the core of the piece we co-authored for Melik's special issue on COVID-19, is uh, the legal framework that was chosen to enact them. As we know, legal frameworks are intentional strategic choices decision makers take in order to define a certain action or situation. Uh, So we just talked about how these measures were framed early in the pandemic under the now famous Article 80 of the uh, Tunisian Constitution of 2014 regarding the state of exception. But apart from the pandemic, which is a uh, shift in moment by itself, this very announcement marks a starting point in Tunisian legal history when the President of the Republic highlighted actually a clear difference and differentiation between the state of exception and the state of emergency. But why is this important? Um, It's because we noticed that the state of exception was proclaimed while the country was already being governed under a state of emergency, which is another exceptional regime regulated by uh, a presidential decree dated back to January uh, 78 and uh, based on Article 46 of the former Tunisian constitution adopted in 59. But what should be noted here is that the article in question, the Article 46, also addresses what is called a state of exception. And so the reference to the Article 46 in a text organizing the state of emergency creates a kind of confusion between uh, these two exceptional legal regimes in Tunisia. And so as such, uh, we notice that both concepts were conflated until uh, March 2020 when the pandemic emerged. And so the recourse to the state of exception, as based on the Article 80 of the new constitution, clearly differentiated the state of exception as a more restrictive, probably more efficient system uh, in acting with urgency and exceptional circumstances, such as those under study. Um, So when we know that uh, the state of emergency was continuously implemented in Tunisia from uh, 2011 onwards, uh, just a few months break between March 2014 and uh, the terrorist attacks in Bardou and Sousse, Uh, we can actually wonder uh, why this regime was invoked during all that time. We can wonder uh, what does it say about the Tunisian governance post-2014. And up until the moment, uh, the state of exception under Article 80 was announced in 2020. Um, So my colleague and I wanted to question um, the real role of the state of emergency. If it was not able to govern exceptions, 
then what are the real reasons behind its continuous invocation? We believe, and that's one of the major arguments of the piece, is that all this says something about the discourse around a democratic transition that is moving forward through the consolidation of milestones as mere deliverables, but are in reality bear a void substance. We are sadly witnesses of a precarious democracy with a political system which is based on power struggle, uh, which is based on confusion, uh, which mainly supported through emergency, and uh, which means that a restrictive system is in place, a restrictive system that ended up becoming a sort of a norm, uh, a sort of a status quo. Yeah, absolutely. And so, you, I mean, you've just touched on a really interesting argument in your article that that the COVID context resists, or I think you say debunks, the, the narrative of democratic exceptionalism in Tunisia. And so maybe we could, we could dig into this a little, because I think a range of indicators would suggest that Tunisia could be considered a democracy between 2011 and 2021. And so would you, would you still consider that exceptional? Um, well, thank you for this question. Uh, I think this is a conversation that is even today and more importantly today, uh, more importantly today, uh, a priority uh, to discuss in Tunisia. And so um, in the process of Tunisia's transition post-2011, the country was celebrated, uh, of course, internationally on many occasions for being, and I quote, the only Arab Spring success story, a startup democracy, and so on. And we believe the celebration of Tunisia's model focused, as you mentioned, on a range of indicators. Some indicators, though. Yes, Tunisia had fair, transparent uh, elections. Yes, the country could peacefully move after every election towards the consolidation of institutions without bloodshed and violence. And yes, different political entities would participate and be part of this deliberative process. There were many additional achievements, of course, freedom of speech being the most important. These initial, albeit fundamental, components were enough to consider Tunisia a democracy in comparison to other experiences where revolutions failed to build the very basic institutions that would constitute a framework to democratic, of course, liberal democratic practice. If you take the Tunisian experience now on its own terms, and this is coming from you know, Tunisians on the ground. So if you take the Tunisian experience on its own terms, and if you try to locate these indicators on a timeline, they would all be found, at least we think, at the beginning of these indicators. Um, and so at the beginning, of course, of what a democracy should look like. These aspects, uh, in our view, constitute the structure within which a democracy so should function. But it still has to function, right? So now, um, did the Tunisian democracy function? And I think that is a fundamental question. Um, this is where we think the exceptional, um, exceptionalism narrative fails. Um, falls. I'm sorry, I repeat the sentence. Uh, this is when we think, uh, this is where we think the Tunisian, the ex I'm sorry. This is where we think the exceptionalism narrative comes up short of capturing the Tunisian transition and actually falls within an authoritarian tradition of favoring procedural formalism over substantive delivery 
of what those procedures should enable. So always never getting to the next step. In the article, we do indeed explain that this tradition of branding Tunisia as exceptional was even used under Ben Ali's state of law and institution and can even be traced back to Bourguiba's politics. Through a combination of legal achievements and impeccable branding of the economic model, Ben Ali's strategy was geared towards uh, polishing the regime's international image and contributed to the crystallization of the democratic medical narrative. Reality, on the other hand, was marked by the inherited dominance of presidentialism as we described it earlier. The emphasis of the president's role, uh, this emphasis on the president's role was legitimized and protected by careful and meticulous proceduralism, as well as the multiplication of legal frameworks, such uh, as formal justification of the, power, uh, of the power's actions. Under Ben Ali specifically, this model, as you know, was branded as the state of law in institutions, Dawlat al-Qanun wal-Mu'assasat. We grew up to this term, Mayor Menai. Uh, this echoes the French concept of état de droit, but only part of it, only the part of state of law. Uh, it celebrates, of course, the supremacy, or at least it should celebrate the supremacy of the law and the protection it offers against state power excesses by establishing institutional and structured safeguards of rights and freedom. Uh, this concept of state of law can be brought back then to the idea of the formal hierarchy of norms and the primacy of the law. And this is when you can, you can actually get to the, the point where the law is so know, kind of sacred in Tunisia. However, we explain that the existence of a state of law is, no, by no me- is by no means a guarantee of successful democratic functioning, including efficient protection of freedoms and liberties uh, or economic delivery as well. Yeah, that's really interesting. And and you mentioned, you know, the focus on legal achievements and the sacredness of law, which reminds me of another, you know, interesting point that emerges from your article. And that I think can be found in another a number of other works on Tunisia. Um, you know, it seems that political change in the country tends to be very legalistic. You know, the the medical coup in 1987 against Bourguiba or Ben Ali's removal or the declaration of the state of exception by Sayed. I mean, they've all been justified through a rather complex set of legal arguments. And I wonder if, you know, you have any thoughts on what explains this preoccupation with legality and, and legalism in the Tunisian context that maybe is not reflected in studies of, you know, other countries in the Arab world? Sure. Um, first, I think there is a difference to be drawn between legality and legalism. Um, legality simply means that a rule is legal, meaning that it has been adopted according to a certain set of procedures uh, by the competent or relevant body that enables it to do so and can be tied then to the idea of the protection of citizens' rights and freedoms and the guarantee of efficiency, visibility, and legal security for citizens. Uh, Legalism, on the other hand, would tend uh, to put the focus on the rule and its procedures rather than on its purpose. So by favoring a strict application of the text, it ends up ignoring the very essence of the law. Why was it actually put in place in the first place? You know, and the essence of the law is, of course, smooth and peaceful organization of interactions at all levels, be it political, social, etc. 
So in Tunisia, the tradition of legality finds its origins in the creation and building of the new independent and cohesive state, of course. And indeed, most Tunisian commentators and law scholars would proudly point out that after the revolution, institutions did not sway, break, or collapse, specifically because the administration had this tradition of faithful application of the texts, which could constitute a landmark in uncertain times or even in situations of total absence of central power. So this tradition of, you know, the respect for legality has been actually useful and beneficial at certain times. However, it is important to observe that the drifts towards legalism you've described in your question and abuse of power, of course, were often a tool used by Tunisia's authoritarian rules to tighten up the grip on uh, citizens' space for political action and speech, of course, but also to control and police daily life to the point of suppressing political awareness and reducing public space to individual interactions. This also happened at the level of academic interactions with uh, law and politics. Of course, where you could find in Tunisia, you know, curriculums for law, but not for political science. Um, and this is starting to change and shift because of all of the political science literature that was in the rise after 2011 about um, Tunisia um, and North Africa in general. But we always have to um, uh, remind that in Tunisia, even though internationally the, the debate about Tunisia's transition was made about uh, from a political science perspective in Tunisia per se, within Tunisian you know, uh, scholars, commentators, the debate was legal. So see, there was this discrepancy between what was happening in kind of global scholarship and then what was happening within uh, you know, Tunisian scholars and commentators. So going back to your, um, I'm sorry for this kind of side note, but going back to uh, the point, um, the law in this case becomes an engine. Uh, so the law in case of legalism becomes an engine of societal management by the state and its use uh, may shift depending on the person and the situation which goes against the spirit of legality. We're talking about um, arbitrary decisions here, mainly. Uh, this brings us back to the use of the law by state agents during the early days of the pandemic, as an example, where we can notice the presence of legalism of the legalism concern. My colleague Mayim um, actually um, noticed how the uh, Ministry of Interior did do these announcements to sort of explain legal texts, but that is where we actually see this concern for legalism. So. This is an invention of a set of sanctions, and it's uh, this invention of a set of sanctions and its application seemed more important than the protection of citizens' liberties. So the implementation of the lockdown, the implementation of the prohibition of circulation seems more, seemed more important than the reason why it was put in place, which is the protection of citizens from COVID-19 and from the pandemic. So we drifted towards, let's, how can we implement the text and not how can we protect citizens? Uh, the Ministry of Interior again and police officer, uh, officers then became ad hoc interpreters of the criminal code and the traffic code. And that is how you can see this difference between legality and legalism and how we can actually, um, in the scope of the article, uh, we should define that we're talking more about this drifts towards legalism. Yeah, yeah, that's really interesting. And 
and reminds me of another point that you know I had in mind while reading your article, um, which is which is how Tunisia's response compares to legal measures you know put in place in other contexts, um, because you know a number of countries, including many established democracies, put in place you know quite strict measures to respond to COVID, and so I wonder if you would consider that democracy you know has regressed generally around the world. Or was there something, you know, quite distinct about the the Tunisian experience? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, um, as we mentioned in the article, uh, our goal is neither to criticize public health safety measures, uh, nor to question their efficiency from a libertarian perspective. Rather, as legal scholars, uh, we tend to to analyze uh, what we considered as a interesting and striking legal strategy by Tunisian rulers. We showed that it reveals more than the, just the mere management of the COVID-19 pandemic and looked at how the legal and the regulation and regulatory context, as well as its application by state agent, functioned on the ground in Tunisia. So uh, by doing so, uh, we do not mean to fetishize Tunisia ourselves or say that uh, there is something distinct about it in this case, for example. We do stress that the country deployed measures that were recommended by the WHO and implemented globally. So however, um, we untangle how these measures were uh, practiced uh, when you also deal with a precarious democracy on the ground. So um, what we argue then, uh, and rather than falling into the trap of exceptionalizing Tunisia ourselves, is that um, when we go back to the idea of democracy testing, any democracy in a crisis setting, um, Tunisia showed fragility and setbacks. Uh, and revealed a rather democratic facade than a real functional one. So uh, this kind of analysis uh, can be linked to the broader conversation, uh, actually you highlighted in the, your question, about how other established democracies uh, faced challenges as well that were exposed by uh, COVID-19. Of course, the disease spread in a global political setting, uh, but this global political settings actually was governed by populistic dynamics uh, an end of an era for partisan politics, an era of conspirations and uh, polarizations. So uh, all these common traits to countries globally can later be combined to the specific realities on the field. Uh, so without falling into particularism, this approach means that uh, we aim to study a case on its own terms and consider it um, it's underlining dynamics. Now, if you actually go back to Tunisia, we see that the pandemic uh, highlighted and supported the idea that the uh, paradigm of governance after the revolution is based on the notions of emergency, exception, authorization, limitation, uh, what we called ruling through exception. This observation did not emerge with the pandemic, but was already notable through the transition period. And uh, the pandemic had only made it a glaring and more prescient concern. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And now, before I let you both go, I, I wanted to also ask, you know, 
the the article looks at the early part of Tunisia's response to COVID and and was written quite early within you know the 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 whole pandemic. And so I was wondering, you know, if you were writing this article now, you know, given that we're so much farther into the pandemic, you know, is there anything you would like to add or, you know, think about differently? Thank you, Ezra, for this question. Um, actually, the uh, entire process for submitting this, the final version of the article was happening between September 2020 and June 2021. That period by itself uh, was packed by very challenging events for Tunisians, to say the least. And it was very hard to make sense of what was happening in early March 2020, while also digesting the plethora of news that was coming up every day from Bardo, the Kasbah, and Carthage. Um, and this is, you know, it's even emotional talking about this now. Um, so um, in the article, talking about how the parliament ended up approving a very restricted and controlled legislative delegation to the head of government under Article 70 of the Constitution, we considered it as a normal move of checks and balances in a political system where prerogatives are very vague and a constitutional court is absent to both control any power abuse desires from the head of government, but also to weaken the scope of the president's actions under Article 80. Well, um, we wrote, and I quote, uh, the Tunisian parliament could not afford a reinforcement of the plebiscite president's institutional weight or to let him determine the space in which power play and governance dynamics would operate by seizing the prerogatives of Article 80. The concern was that the ad hoc politics of the state of exception would turn into another normalized legal framework lasting beyond its initial context, somehow recognizing the fragile status quo that emerged in the course of Tunisia's transition. End of quote. And oh my God, little did we know. <laughs> State of exception under Article 80 has actually become a normalized legal framework. And it's definitely, as we can all uh, observe, it's definitely lasting beyond, beyond its initial context, whatever that was. So first, the legal discussions about the legal basis that occurred in the early stage of the pandemic show indeed the danger of power concentration and the legitimate fear political actors were expressing during the delegation of legislative powers to the chief of government. This does not mean that we think the parliament is above all criticism, as it did certainly play an important part in the crisis Tunisia is witnessing right now. After the explicit declaration of the state of exception after July 25th, 2021, and in perspective, we would have been more vocal maybe about how the president's seizure of powers under Article 80 can be disruptive. The current state of exception we are witnessing right now shows what, are really, what really are the powers the president was able to concentrate and seize. And maybe... What was the intentional strategy, as we mentioned earlier, about kind of testing the ground with this kind of unexplicit declaration of, of Article 80 back then? As far as the pandemic was, is concerned, moving from an unexplicit to an explicit 
clearly proclaimed, declared, and effectively implemented state of exception supports actually one of our central arguments, the normalization of state of emergency following the 2011 revolution um, does not reflect uh, the value of democratic governance, but rather it reflects a disciplinary tool that reveals by itself the um, you know authoritarian practices which supported all of these consensus politics, etc., that we talked about uh, in the beginning of the um, you know of our conversation. Uh, well, that's really interesting, and I think you know probably also a good place for us to leave it today. So, really, thank you both so much for coming on the podcast and you know allowing us to to dig into your really interesting article. Well, thank you so much, Ezra, for giving us the opportunity to speak about the article. Yes, thank you. Uh, thank you for inviting us. No, thank you again. And thank you to everyone that listened in. We'll be back soon with another episode of the Middle East Law and Governance Podcast.